Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. The defendant's four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings. Those are the words of Judge Tanya Chutkin in a scathing new filing about Donald Trump, in which she rejects his claim of presidential immunity in the federal case against him. The law firm of Weissman & Katyal is here to break it all down, and that is coming up first. Plus, yet another example of the former president's authoritarian impulses as he threatens to make this network pay if he takes back the White House. All for some thoughts about just how dangerous that is. Also today, is it possible that the greatest scandal facing the House Republican conference this week actually had nothing to do with George Santos? Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett is here to talk about a House that is still very much on fire. And later, as lawmakers flee Congress at a record pace, the first installment of a new series that we're calling The Exit Interview. Congressman Dan Kildee joins me to discuss why he's leaving, what he's learned, and what comes next. So many, many years ago, a former president was suspected of breaking the law. Though he was long out of office at the time, big questions still loomed over his legacy, and he wanted to set the record straight. But in trying to justify his actions, he uttered what might be the most fundamentally incorrect line about the boundaries of presidential power. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. If a president does it, then it's not illegal. Those words have echoed through history, and Richard Nixon never quite lived them down. But that's exactly what Donald Trump is now arguing in defense of his effort to overturn the 2020 election. He and his legal team have tried to dismiss the entire criminal case against him based on the faulty legal theory that a president and even former presidents are entirely immune from criminal prosecution for the actions they took in office. Now, that's quite an argument to make. Think about it. Trump and his lawyers argued that everything that he did to overturn the 2020 election, everything, the attempts to have the Justice Department open sham investigations, the pressure campaign to get his vice president to unilaterally reject the election results, all of it fell under Trump's official responsibilities as president. Now, if that were true, think about this. The president would literally have unchecked power. Every president would. In other words, if the president does it or did it, it's not illegal, right? And this isn't just a Hail Mary legal defense of a man desperate to avoid prison. He definitely wants to avoid prison. It's how Donald Trump actually views the power of the presidency. If President Obama is allowed to do what he did on DACA, then I'm allowed to do whatever I want to do. I have the right to do whatever I want as president, but I don't even talk about that. It gives me all of these rights. At a level that nobody has ever seen before. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. The authority is total. The authority is total. Not exactly, by the way. 
But that view of unrestrained presidential power came crashing down late Friday evening when the federal judge presiding over Trump's federal election case, Tanya Chutkin, denied Trump's motion to dismiss the case. And with it, she rejected Trump's warped theory of presidential immunity. So let's dig into this ruling for a moment because it's quite spicy in how it's written. It's an important development in this case, in part because of how she did it, but also because of her reasoning. It's a much-needed reminder that no one is above the law, despite all the noise Trump and his allies are trying to make and the argument they're trying to make. As Chuckin writes, quote, whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy, the United States has only one chief executive at a time, and that position does not confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass. And in a scathing rebuke to Trump's lawyers, she writes, quote, the president's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed does not grant special latitude to violate them. She continues saying Trump's four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens. Of course, Trump will inevitably appeal this ruling. We know that. But that appeal must go to the D.C. Circuit, which, just hours before Chutkin's ruling on Friday evening, delivered a similar opinion in a separate civil case, deciding that the former president is also not immune from civil suits. It's all part of this tension we're seeing between a former president arguing he should be above the law and federal judges saying he isn't above the law. And it can feel surreal that this is even a dispute. I mean, are we a country where everyone is bound by the same rule of law? Of course we are. Or is it not illegal if a president does it? That's why Judge Chetkin's ruling this week was an important affirmation of what we are supposed to be as a country, in principle, but also in practice. Joining me now is our in-house law firm, the great Neil Katiel, is former acting U.S. Solicitor General, and the great Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI and a special member of special, uh, a member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. So, Andrew, this was quite a ruling on Friday night. I want to start with you because in her ruling, she references history. She kind of reminds us of core principles relating to equal justice, or that's how I read it as a non-lawyer. But How did you read it? And what does it say about where we are as a country that a judge even needs to put this in writing? I think there are two points. One is this really is an example of the judiciary standing up for the rule of law. uh, And her opinion on Friday was magisterial in doing that. In terms of the history of where we are as a country, I think Judge Chutkin's um, evoking George Washington's farewell speech, uh, mm-hmm. I thought, was brilliant. I'm just going to take a moment just to quote a little portion of that, because it's just so telling that George Washington, as our first president, saw this coming and said, with respect mm. to the idea of a president not being subject to the rule of law, being exempt from criminal prosecution, would lead to the following—and I'm quoting from George Washington, which Judge Shutkin quotes from— Cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and Mm -hmm. usurp for themselves the reins of government. Um, That is clearly a reference to the allegations here in the case before her with respect to Donald Trump. It's pretty stunning. I mean, given that was literally hundreds of years ago, as everyone knows, what that could see ahead to and what our founders were thinking about. So, so Neil, one of the big questions here is, of course, 
what happens now? Um, and there is this theory, of course, that this will go to the Supreme Court. You said this ruling is such a, supreme, a slam dunk that the Supreme Court isn't likely to take it up. And given how many cases you've argued, I thought that really stuck out to me. Why don't you think they would? Because everything Donald Trump says, like in those clips you just showed, is bogus, like 100 percent bogus, Jen. Um, I've taught constitutional law 20 times at Georgetown. Mm -hmm. I've been the president's top lawyer before the Supreme Court. And I can tell you, nobody thinks that this is the law. And, you know, not even a student in 20 years would defend this kind of Richard Nixon-esque principle that Donald Trump is saying. And, you know, I, I think we should take Trump's argument for what it is. This is not a good faith argument about the Constitution because mm. no scholar would support him. This is just about delay. Remember when he was president, he said... I can't be tried because I'm a sitting president. Now he's saying I can't be tried because I'm running to be president. And later, he's, his lawyers have said in Georgia just this week, if he wins the election, then he can't be tried until 2029. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, they're just saying Donald Trump can't be tried on any day of the week that ends in the letter Y. Um, it's ridiculous. Now, <laughs> it will go up to the, the to the D.C. Circuit, to the mm -hmm. Court of Appeals, where I suspect it'll be rejected pretty quickly because of that ruling you mentioned earlier earlier on the civil case. I think that will control this. And then the Supreme Court has the choice to hear this case or not. And there's just not any real good argument on the merits for Donald Trump. And so I think they can dispose of this case quickly. And I think the trial can proceed on March 4th as it should. So, Andrew, as, as Neil referenced, I mean, I, I don't think anyone here is validating and most people wouldn't val validate the legal argument, but it only requires four justices to agree to take up a case, right, to the Supreme Court. And many of them are Trump appointees. I know this isn't how it's supposed to work, but that's why I want to ask the question. Do you agree they wouldn't take it up? And, and if they did, what, what could be the what, what impact could that have? How could that help Trump, even if they didn't rule in his favor? Well, the only way that the March 4th trial is not going to happen, because Judge Chutkin is adamant she is going to have it on that date, and jury selection is actually starting in January, just a few weeks from now, is whether the D.C. Circuit is going to move with alacrity and then whether the Supreme Court is going to take the case and issue a stay. Um, I think this is an instance where, as Martin Luther King said, justice too long delayed is justice denied. It is imperative mm. that the judiciary act quickly on this. I totally agree with uh, my law partner for the show, uh, <laughs> Neil, that this is not a meritorious uh, claim. I am worried about the speed, though. And this is, mm. you know, this is a failing in our judicial system that um, the former president takes advantage of. It is truly imperative that justice be meted out quickly here if the American public is going to see accountability in this case. Whichever way the jury decides, it is important to have that accountability. So, Neil, in, in terms of the process here, um, you know, what does the timeline look like? And that is the, the delay here. You brought this up. Andrew brought this up. What are we looking at and what concerns you the most about that possibility? Well, I think that to the extent that Trump wants to try and seek a stay of the trial, he'd have to go to the court pretty quickly to the D.C. Circuit and seek that and then seek a quick appeal. I do think that the circuit will order quick briefing and quick oral argument on that. And then they'll try the Trump. I suspect Trump will lose, and then he'll try and take it to the U.S. Supreme Court again. I think all of that can be done 
very, very quickly. And, you know, sure, Jen, you're right that there are several Trump appointees on the court, but I think it's important to remember those very Trump appointees voted against Donald Trump, for example, Mm -hmm. when Trump tried to to claim executive privilege uh, over the January 6th committee. All the Trump appointees rejected that. It was an eight to Mm -hmm. one decision against him. In the independent state legislature case I just argued, which had a lot of political valence, again, you saw the Republican appointed justices still siding with the over with the vast majority of the court to say uh, this theory was bogus. So, you know, I think that there's, you know, particularly for a case like this in which there's really no decent argument that Donald Trump has, I don't see this as slowing down a trial. And I think Andrew's absolutely right. The American public deserve answers. And, you know, if Trump is convicted, convinced he did nothing wrong, then go and prove that up to a jury. He's going to have to he's going to have every advantage at his disposal because the criminal justice system bends totally in favor of defendants. The prosecution has to convince all 12 jurors Mm -hmm. that Trump is guilty and under the most difficult standard in the law beyond a reasonable doubt. That's such an important reminder, and and you're the expert on this, too, and how these cases have been argued, even as frustrated as we can all be at moments with the Supreme Court and some decisions. I want to ask you, Andrew, before I let you guys go, Trump's legal team also argued that because he wasn't convicted during his impeachment, he should not be able to face criminal prosecution. I mean, there's all sorts of issues with that, but explain why that doesn't hold up. Well, what he is referring to is the uh, double jeopardy clause where you can't be tried twice for the same crime. The problem for him is the reason this is such a frivolous argument is an impeachment is not a criminal proceeding. But even if it were, even if you assume that what he was um, being impeached for is insurrection, and that is not what he is charged with. So Mm -hmm. under the technical rules of double jeopardy, it simply doesn't apply. That is one of the really frivolous arguments um, that is disposed of by Judge Chuck, and I can't see any court agreeing um, with Donald Trump's position on this. There's really nothing to worry about in this argument. Andrew Weissman and Neil Katyal, always a pleasure. I always learn something. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. And coming up, Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett on all of the chaos in the House, from George Santos to some very concerning new information about Speaker Mike Johnson. Plus my thoughts and an in-depth conversation about why we should pay close attention to Donald Trump's attacks on this network and other media. And later, Congressman Dan Kildee joins me for the show's very first exit interview, featuring lawmakers who are calling it quits. We're just getting started this hour, and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow.
So on Friday, George Santos was officially expelled from the House of Representatives. You've probably heard quite a bit about this by now because it is getting a ton of attention. And there's a lot of material to work with, to be fair. I mean, he used campaign funds for Botox and OnlyFans. You can't make it up sometimes. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But as the scandal engulfing George Santos continues to get a whole lot of oxygen and a whole lot of attention, I think we need to spend less time talking about the no-name, now-ex-congressman from New York, who never had any real power to begin with and certainly doesn't now, and more time talking about the man who is currently second in line for the presidency. As first reported by CNN, Speaker Mike Johnson wrote the forward for and publicly promoted the 2022 book, The Revivalist Manifesto. Now, this is a book, in case you haven't read it and you probably haven't, that gives credence to baseless conspiracy theories like the Pizzagate hoax, which falsely claimed top Democrats were involved in a pedophile ring mysteriously in a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. And it implies that Supreme Court Ju- Chief Justice John Roberts was connected to sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. The book also defends podcaster Joe Rogan from racism charges after he used the N-word, repeatedly insults Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, calling him a, quote, queer choice, very subtle there, for the cabinet position, and it refers to low-income voters as unsophisticated. And in a forward for this book that propagates all of those awful things, Johnson wrote that the author, quote, presents a valuable and timely contribution because he has managed here to articulate well what millions of conscientious, freedom-loving Americans are sensing. Now, I wouldn't exactly call conspiracy theories and homophobic insults valuable and timely, but apparently our House Speaker would. And Johnson doubled down on his support for this book and what it stands for, saying on his podcast, quote, I obviously believe in the product or I wouldn't have written the forward. So I endorse the work. Mike Johnson's views are dangerous. It doesn't get much clearer than that. So even though all of the details surrounding George Santos are kind of funny and very salacious and a little weird, we all need to stop paying as much attention to Santos and start paying more attention to Mike Johnson. Trust me, it's going to matter a whole lot more moving forward. Joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett of the U.S. Virgin Islands. It's great to be here with you, and thank you so much for joining me on set here. So I wanted to just get your reaction, Mm -hmm. start with some of the details I just went through. And there's a lot we've also learned about Speaker Johnson over the course of the last couple of months. How concerning is it all to you, given he's second in line to the presidency? I mean, it's very disturbing uh, to hear all of these allegations. And Mike Johnson has been very quiet, right, about who he really is. And it hasn't been many people who were aware of who this individual was. But I think the vote itself, to make him speaker, and a unanimous vote, really tells you where the Republican conference Mm -hmm. is. That this is the type of person that they really wanted. Mm -hmm. They want someone with that ideology. They just want them to be quiet and go about meticulously taking away individuals' rights to do that. And so I'm not surprised that Mike Johnson is there. And I have a bet that he is going to stay through the election. Mm, through because, next year. Through next year. So not, he'll survive. That's kind of interesting. I think he's going to survive because that's who they want. Should Trump lose again, prayerfully, and he challenge the election? that he wants to have Mike Johnson standing on that speaker's podium um, when that happens because of his beliefs, not only in these crazy conspiracy theories, 
but his orchestrating uh, the denial of the election. This is such an important point. And Liz Cheney, of all people, I, I bet you never thought we'd be talking about Liz Cheney and maybe agreeing with her on something, I, but we have know, for a while. You never know. But I want to play something that um, she said about Mike Johnson and get your thoughts on it. So let's okay. play that first. And Mike was willing time and again to ignore the rulings of the courts, to ignore what state and federal courts had done and said about the elections in these states in order to attempt to do Donald Trump's bidding. The Speaker of the House is a collaborator to overthrow the last election. Absolutely. What happens if Mike Johnson's the Speaker on the 6th of January, 2025? He can't be. She's pretty clear in her views there. It it sounds like you might agree, but what do you think? I completely agree. Um, I think that, you know, just look at Mike Johnson was part of the weaponization committee. That are all, those are all of the extremists of the Republican Party. And their job is to push conspiracy theories to set the stage for the election for Donald Trump um, and to do his bidding time and time again. So I'm absolutely, and you know, one of the other things Lynch Cheney said in the book is that in a conversation with Jim Jordan, he says winning is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. It is not about doing what's necessary for the American people, because we've seen throughout this tenure, this year now that they've been here, that nothing related to the American people has taken place. All of the amazing things that they said that they were going to do to support the people of this country— they have not done not one single piece of legislation related to that. Which is an important reminder for everyone to hear. I want to ask you about impeachment, because House GOP lawmakers said an impeachment inquiry vote into President Biden could happen next week. And, and right. Speaker Johnson said the Democrats were brazenly political when they impeached Trump. And what the GOP doing, is doing now is exactly the opposite. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first— the impeachment of Donald Trump, both impeachments, were related to the things that Donald Trump did, mm. not related to allegations mm -hmm. that any of his children did. Mm -hmm. They have not, even their own witnesses that they brought forward, been able to find a nexus between any of the allegations of Hunter Biden mm -hmm. and the president, uh, Joe Biden, or even when he was vice president. Joe Biden. There's no nexus. There's no there there. Their own witnesses have said it. And so we're going to go forward with this because they have nothing else to show the American people that they've done in the time that they've been there. Think about it. When Democrats had control of the House in the last election, we passed the bipartisan infrastructure plan, the CHIPS Act, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, bringing the cost of insulin down. Mm -hmm. That's all in the time period that a woman would have a, be pregnant and have a child, mm -hmm. nine months, right? And what have they done? Zero. And so they've got to keep bringing these salacious, performative politics to the forefront uh, for American people to look at that shiny object rather than the fact that Republicans are unwilling to support the people of this country. Congresswoman Stacey Plastica, that's a very clear rundown of the choice. Important for everybody here. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. me here Thanks this afternoon. Before we go to break, we have some breaking news now out of the Middle East. NBC News has confirmed that a U.S. warship destroyed a Houthi drone headed in their direction while in the southern Red Sea. They then observed a ballistic missile fired at a civilian commercial vessel and responded to that vessel's subsequent distress call. While assisting that distressed vessel, the USS Kearney then shot down another Houthi drone that was headed in the direction of both ships. 
This took place over several hours, and there were no injuries or damage to U.S. vessels. We're going to keep a very close eye on this over the next 35 minutes, and we'll update you as we learn more. Coming up, we, why we should all take Donald Trump's true social attack on the media, and specifically this network, very, very seriously. I'll offer some thoughts on that coming up next. This week, Donald Trump took to Truth Social, which he often does, with what may have sounded just like another one of those crazy unhinged rants. But he was very specific this time. He attacked this network in particular, MSNBC, He's attacked other networks and other members of the media often over the past couple of years. He called for the U.S. government in this particular post to come down hard on MSNBC and promised that there is more to come. He also talked about himself in the third person, always a red flag in my book, and he included his middle initial in that, too. But once you get moved beyond that kind of weird detail of his post, Trump is promising to resort to an authoritarian tactic should he become president again. Does the federal government have any role in the oversight of a cable news network? No, they actually don't. But that's not really the point here. What's important here is that he's threatening to use the power of the government against media he believes is being critical of him. Now, believe me, I know from experience, from many, many days and hours at the briefing room, that the relationship between the U.S. government and the free press can be tense at times. And even both of the presidents I worked for could have, they had their own moments of unleashing their media critiques when they didn't like a story. And when I think about the role of the free press and how essential it is for our democracy, I often think about my time as spokesperson for the State Department, because I got into it a lot with a reporter named Matt Lee from the Associated Press. He is still there. He has long been the dean of the press corps, and he has earned that right. He probably knows more about foreign policy than a good percentage of the people working in the building. Lee became so well-known for grilling me and many other press secretaries during the outbreak of the war in Ukraine that he became kind of a bit of a folk hero in the Kremlin. They portrayed him as someone who was holding the U.S. to account, who was standing up to power. To be clear, he wasn't pushing Russian talking points, not at all. The Russians just liked that he, this American reporter was tough and combative and was pushing back on me and others in the briefing room. At one point, I asked Lee about this, and his response stuck with me. He basically said, whether the policy is good or bad or smart or makes sense or not, which obviously he was going to push us on, the U.S. government has multiple briefings a day at the White House, the Pentagon, the State Department, and journalists can go and push and ask questions. The Russians may applaud me, as in him, at these events, but they have none of that. They don't have a free press there, a free functioning press in Russia. I haven't thought of Lee's words when I was at the White House because it was a reminder that even when things were combative, and they were at times, even when reporters kept pushing and questioning, as was their job, that was democracy working. That is what a free press is supposed to do. And it doesn't exist everywhere in the world. In fact, it's diminishing in the world. So Trump's true social post may have seemed unhinged and crazy and random and like you could ignore it. It was actually, though, a threat to the free press, a threat to democracy. And that threat comes at a time when a record total of 533 journalists are currently detained worldwide. That's according to Reporters Without Borders. A large number of them are being held by the sorts of authoritarian regimes that Trump envisions creating here at home. These are countries being led by his role models, like Russian President Vladimir Putin, who Trump called very savvy and a genius for his actions in Ukraine. In Russia, an American journalist, Evan Gershkovich, 
has been detained for 249 days simply for doing his job. Trump has also repeatedly praised the leadership style of China's President Xi Jinping. Over 100 journalists are currently detained in China. And over the last couple of years, several foreign journalists from major outlets have been expelled entirely from the country. Putin and Xi are models for Trump. We know that. Leaders who jail and silence journalists, leaders who do not tolerate free speech, that's what Trump is threatening. And if you don't think he's eager to use those tactics, if you don't think he is dying to silence his critics in the media, think again. The Washington Post Jason Rezaian was held hostage for 544 days in an Iranian prison, and he joins me next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. When Donald Trump threatened to use the federal government to go after his critics in the media this week, my first thought was, I wonder what Jason Resign thinks about all of this. Jason was held hostage for 544 days in an Iranian prison. He was the Washington Post Tehran bureau chief, and he's now a global opinions writer for The Post. I'm so grateful that you're here today. And you and your wife, who's amazing, have done so much work to elevate kind of authoritarian regimes and what they're trying to do to crack down on freedom of speech and media. I just want to ask you, because sometimes people feel in this country like this is so far away. What are the kind of tactics that are happening in other countries that we should really be aware of and thinking about here? Well, Could yeah, come here. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about this. Exactly the kind of things that Donald Trump has been talking about when he was president and he, that he's still talking about now. Uh, fortunately, unable to act on many of those yeah. things while he was president. I wonder if, if there's a second Trump presidency, if he would have the limitations around attacking the press. But, you know, so much of it is about discrediting uh, the work of independent journalists, mm-hmm. uh, you know, slandering them, essentially, uh, and then trying to silence them in any way possible, whether it's arresting them, whether it's taking away their ability to, to do the job, and in some cases, in many cases, killing them. Yeah, I mean, which is such an important reminder. It's not so far away when we hear this is a slippery slope. And in a country like Iran, obviously, you spent a significant time covering, but also, of course, in prison there, they they have a pattern, right? They crack down, as you said, they jail, um, they go after. Are there other tactics people should be aware of that you're seeing in this pattern? Yeah, and there's also a through line through, you know, arresting someone like me or Evan Grishkovich in in Russia Mm. and the impact that it has on all media coverage Mm -hmm. of that country. So in my case, since my arrest in 2014, the Washington Post hasn't had anybody on on the ground in Iran for a single day. But because they're scared of having someone there and the risks. 
And then the effect that that has on other news outlets is immediate and long-lasting. Mm-hmm. So the, the New York Times doesn't have anybody any, anymore. Uh, anybody who's working as a contributor for these people, these these outlets are, are local reporters. Mm-hmm. They don't have the sort of protective cover of someone like me who is a, a U.S. national uh, working on the ground there. And then as we pull back in the, in the international media, uh, the, the domestic media is really the front line. They are our source for all information. Mm-hmm. And the crackdowns against them get higher and higher. So now what we're seeing is, in addition to, to journalists being arrested and killed, exiled. Yeah. You know, take away their ability to work, kick them out of the country. We're doing a better job of welcoming those people to our shores these days. But we really need to do more to get them up and running, empowered as journalists in freedom covering those countries that they've been kicked out. It's so important. I mean, Evan, you mentioned, who has been in jail now for over almost 250 days. His sentence was just extended late last week. I've watched him, as we all have, on TV when he comes out in the courtroom. And he looks confident. And I just wonder, I mean, you've been in a different country, but in a similar position. What is going on for Evan right now? What's going through your head in those moments? Every day is a slog. It's so hard to get through, but you understand that the rest of the world is watching. People know that it's a farce. Mm -hmm. Evan has absolutely nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to hide. So when he goes out there and puts that look of defiance, almost that that smirk on Mm -hmm. his face, it's, it's a feeling that I knew, knew well. I actually wrote a column about it the, mm. the day after he first appeared in court to say, hey, look, he knows exactly what he's up against, and we need to stand with him. We need to raise his voice, elevate his plights, and, 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 and let him know that he's going to come home. I don't know when, but I know that he'll be back, and when he does— and welcome into the fold of, of those of us who have been fighting this fight for a Absolutely. long time. Absolutely, and keep his name in the news, which is so important, I know. I wanted to ask you also about, we've all been watching these stories of hostages who are held by Hamas coming back, and there's this moment of happiness and elation. And I don't know if you transport yourself back to that moment when you watch this, but there's a long road ahead, which is important to remember. What should we know about? They're all in different conditions, maybe different from what you experienced, of course. What, what should we know about what that road to recovery is and what it's going to be like for them? First of all, those people were taken in a very violent act mm-hmm. with a war raging literally above ground where they were being held. So the kind of uh, traumatic, post-traumatic um, uh, symptoms that they might uh, be experiencing are really impossible to quantify mm-hmm. at this point. The road is long, but that feeling of relief, elation, knowing that not only have you survived this thing, that you're going to have a life ahead of you, mm-hmm. that's the thing that I hope that they are able to grasp and, and, and hold on to and move forward with because it's not easy. You have to do a lot of work. Recovering is, is possible from something like that, but it's certainly not guaranteed. And I just hope that they have the, the support of their families, their communities, their government, in the way that I did. Jason Rezaian, thank you for all the work you do to elevate all of these cases and journalists who are being held overseas. Really appreciate you being here. Uh, Coming up next, the most candid conversations with lawmakers often happen when there's nothing left to run for. Congressman Dan Kildee standing by for the show's very first exit interview. That's coming up after a very quick break. Well, it's been another totally normal, completely chill week in the United States Congress. Hunter Biden has agreed to testify publicly. They finally got it. Yeah. 
and they don't want it. We need to sit down and ask specific substantive questions without going five minutes back and forth with with Jamie Raskins and Dan Goldman and and uh, little Moskowitz jumping up and down. The Senate Judiciary Committee just voted to authorize subpoenas. I don't buy anything you just said. <laughs> Let's just be real blunt and direct. This is a. Uh garbage. Congratulations on destroying the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. George Santos was absurd before any of this happened. This place is littered in political theater and the American people are the ones paying the price. This is bullying. Congressman George Santos has been expelled. Congressman, what do you say to your constituents? Excuse me. You guys got to get out of my way. That was just one week. Why in the world would anyone want to leave that work environment? Well, for whatever reason, and I know this will come as a shock to all of you, it turns out lots of lawmakers have kind of had enough. They're leaving in record numbers. 13 senators and representatives announced they wouldn't seek re-election in November alone, which is the highest number in more than a decade. And while they're leaving for a variety of reasons, including my next guest, many of them have pointed to the recent dysfunction in Congress for their planned departures. The growing list of lawmakers heading for the door made me think. Now's the time to start a new recurring segment on the show. We're calling it the exit interview. The hope is that those departing lawmakers will be a bit more candid about what's really going on there than now that they're on their way out. And first up is Democratic Congressman Dan Kildee of Michigan. He announced he will retire after wrapping up his sixth term in office. So congratulations. I'm sure your family is thrilled Very that they happy. will be spending more time with you. Absolutely. But I wanted to start by reading um, from your announcement. You said... Quote, there are times in all of our lives that make you reassess your own future and path. For me, being diagnosed with cancer earlier this year was one of those moments. Thankfully, I had successful surgery and I'm cancer free. We're all grateful to hear that. But talk to me a little bit about how that diagnosis changed your perspective. Well, in this job, we often have very little time to sit quietly and reflect about Mm -hmm. our lives and about Mm -hmm. what we're doing with our time. After my surgery, not only was I sitting quietly at home, I had no voice for a while, and it gave me a chance to reflect, and it became clear to me that there's another chapter for me to pursue um, after Congress where I'm a full-time Michigander at home, surrounded by the people that I love and who you know who I want to spend the, the remaining years of my life with. Full-time Michigander sounds pretty good, not, not even being from Michigan. <laughs> now, I referenced this a little bit in my opening. A lot of your colleagues have blamed um, dysfunction as a reason to leave. Uh, you were pretty clear in your reasons, but did that play a role for you at all as you made your decision? Yeah, it's a part of the calculation because when we make the sacrifice to leave on a Monday and say, maybe I'll be back Thursday, mm-hmm. maybe not, we come here. Yeah. And when we're doing work that is satisfying, like we did in the last Congress, it's a lot easier to justify that trade-off. And it's a lot easier even for my family to say, yeah, this is, this is important and meaningful work. I'm convinced it'll be that way again, Mm -hmm. because I'm convinced Democrats will be in the majority next term. But for me, the personal decision really is is the larger part of this. But it's hard to erase the fact that what we've seen, the Congress that I've seen in the last few years, is not even close to what I saw when I was elected in 2012. It was a Republican majority then, but this is not a Republican party. This is something else. This is not like the party of Boehner or Paul Ryan. This is has gone off the rails. It's quite different. And, and I was in the White House when you were elected. And I remember we had frustrations, as I'm sure you did, right. about Republican leadership. But what's changed the most over the last 12 years? I mean, when you leave, you'll have been in Congress for 12 years. What's changed the most over the past 
more than a decade. The biggest change is that the Republican Party then had different policy goals, different ideology, different philosophy of government, but was committed to trying to govern, trying to be a part of governing solutions. Often things I didn't agree with. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we did agree. And when we did, it was good. It was good for the people of my hometown of Flint, for example, Mm -hmm. when Paul Ryan negotiated with me, along with the help of Speaker Pelosi, the Flint relief package. Yeah. I couldn't imagine getting that done now because this group, this Republican Party, if we can call it that, is committed to chaos. And the people who are in charge are the most fringy, most Mm -hmm. extreme members, and they're calling the tune. That's the difference. John Boehner had a problem with his fringe members. Mm -hmm. Kevin McCarthy embraced them and put them in charge. They made them his kitchen cabinet. And look what happened to him. And Mike Johnson seems to be doing something similar so far. You referenced uh, the Flint water crisis. And of course, during any member's time, but certainly during yours, you dealt with a range of challenges. And you pushed to get federal funding to help uh, everyone in Flint. You were definitely critical of the state officials who were responsible for that crisis. You were very vocal about that. As you were spending your time reflecting, do you think that entire crisis has prompted the kind of change that needs to happen around the country for communities like Flint? Or is there more you think needs to happen? There's a lot more that needs to be done. But the, the, the one of the things that's gratifying to me is that I was able to get help for Flint, but that Flint didn't stand as an anomaly. Mm. It helped inform our decisions. What we were able to do in the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law, for example, is to get money to take out every lead pipe in the country. Mm-hmm. I talked to President Biden about this many times. So Flint is important. But it also turned out to be an important lesson that informed the decision making of Congress. And that prolific Congress that we just left behind the last two years of, of Democratic majority, we did a lot of things. One of them is to help prevent another Flint, Michigan from happening. Yeah, the lead pipes is such a huge deal. Now, I know you have a year to go. Um, before and you have more chapters, but what are you most looking forward to? What's the one thing you're most looking forward to when you leave Congress? I, I think it's you know being in one place for more than three or four days at a time and being able to be at home. And I, I'll I'll do more work. I'm not retiring. Right. I'm retiring from Congress. Uh, I've never really retired. I've never changed jobs. I just get a different toolbox. So I plan to go back home and find a way to make a contribution, but to do so in a way that allows me to to be with my family, mm-hmm. uh, to spend time with my friends. The things that are the hardest thing for us to do as members of Congress, I'll be able to do just as a part of my regular day. Well, Congressman, thank you for your service. You've got another year left. Can't wait to see what your next chapter is. And Thanks, thank Jen. you for participating in our very first exit interview. We're coming right back after a very quick break. Stay with us. That does it for me today, but we are working on a big show for tomorrow night. I will be back here tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern with a few great guests, including Congressman Adam Schiff and The Daily Show's Jordan Klepper. I also want to know what you all think of our exit interview series and who you want to hear from. So please let us know that and share any ideas with us as well. We have lots of legal developments to dig into tomorrow night, lots of news surrounding the former president's discuss. And a quick programming night for tonight. Be sure to tune in to NBC Tonight to watch the latest MSNBC film called Between Life and Death, Terry Chavo's story. The documentary goes beyond the headlines surrounding the national debate over her life in the 1990s and early 2000s. 
That airs tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern here on MSNBC. It's also streaming on Peacock, so you can also watch it there. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com.